Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see you unique, exalted, perfect, perfect in being, perfect in all your ways. May the words we've just heard sung be true. We want for nothing, only you. Nothing else can satisfy us. We want to love you first and most. We see you unique among all religious leaders and worldly philosophies. You stand alone. The perfect answer to the love and justice of God. We admit to you that we wrestle with desires that are counter to the types of desires that are pleasing to you. We wrestle to find our identity in you. We struggle with that. We come up short again and again. Know how we need your grace. Know how we need your mercy. As we open your word today, Lord Jesus, would you be pleased to reveal more of yourself to us? Show us what is true. Show us what is right. Show us what is good. Let us walk in obedience, not in our own strength, but in the strength you provide by the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling in your people. We don't trust in wanting to be people of good behavior. We're going to be people whose hearts have been transformed, who have been brought out of death and into life. Thank you that you are alive. We love you. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, how are we doing, church? Good. It's good to see you. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to kind of jump around a lot of different places today, but that's where we'll begin. Well, if you have been with us, we've been in a series. So I'm going to put these down here for the sake of having a lot of space. We have been in a series on God, the gospel, and sex that we have been examining who God is and what he says about sex and how the gospel shapes the way we think about sex. And so uh, I hope that you find yourself uh, aware of that as you walk in here today. So we're glad to have you and glad you're here. We, let me do a little bit of review. Oh, and actually before I do that, before I do it, let me say this. I mentioned last week, we're gonna have a little Q&A time after this. We won't do it in this space. We'll do it in the student space, which is like out those doors to the right. We'll just do that immediately after this for an hour or so. Actually, I'll stick around as, you know, as long as you guys uh, wanna chat. But the, the key thing there is if you're a parent, please make sure you pick up your kids before you head down that way because our children's ministry cannot stick around that long. So just wanted you to be aware of that. Do my due diligence to be a good teammate with them, all right? So now let me give you a little bit of review of where we've been. So in week one in this series, we talked about God's uh, design for sexuality. We said that God designed sex to teach us more about him and that for that reason, he delights in it. So far from sex being this thing that God saw as low or as just sort of utilitarian and necessary, that God actually has high purposes for sex, that it's actually a form of worship to him. And that because it's a form of worship that's meant to reveal to us things about his nature and who he is and what he's done in Jesus, that it, it calls for a high context for sexual expression. So it calls for the covenant uh, boundaries of marriage for sex to accomplish its job. So we talked about that, we talked about four pillars of a Christian view of sex that have existed since the beginning of the church. Then in week two, we talked about how the gospel has made it so that singleness is not less preferable than marriage. In fact, it is, has distinct advantages for spreading God's fame to all people everywhere. Now you remember we talked about the fact that in an ancient society, particularly in the ancient Near East, marriage would have been sort of viewed as an ultimate end, something that you needed to have, something that you needed to have in order to have value, to have status. It's, it's in a sense how you climbed the social ladder, how you made sure you were safe, right? Uh, particularly if you were female in that context. And so we saw that the gospel comes into play then and it just radically alters people's view about singleness as a lesser form of existence. It says, oh, no, no, no. Singleness is not only not a lesser form of existence, it actually has distinct advantages for accomplishing kingdom purposes. And so we saw that Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 7 that what the gospel does is it makes it so that marriage is not an ultimate end, but neither is singleness, right? That both of those are kingdom, possibly kingdom building realities in our life. And so no longer 
Do we aim at marriage or do we aim at singleness to keep our personal freedom? We aim at extending God's kingdom into the world. And if singleness best accomplishes that, then we walk down that road. And if marriage best accomplishes it, then we walk down that road. That was the argument we wanted to make last week when it came to understanding God's intention and design in singleness. Now, I gave you the roadmap in week one and reminded us last week. So what we come to this week is a discussion of homosexuality. Um, we want to talk about what does the Bible say about homosexuality, uh, both its orientation and its practice. Uh, what does it say? What does it not say? And how do we live in light of what it says? And how should we think about same-sex orientation and practice in light of the Bible's overarching sexual ethic, those four pillars that we talked about in week one? So it's an important question for a number of reasons. In no sense is this a new conversation. It's been going on for generations. And so it's not a new conversation, but it's a particularly important one, I think, for this day and age because the conversation has probably never been louder than it is right now. Have you heard this conversation? Would you agree that it gets relatively loud and heated around this conversation? Yeah. And so I think it's important. The other thing I would say is that I encounter in my conversations, a lot of folks who have, it seems like pretty set opinions, like this is what I believe about this subject, right? About homosexual orientation, about homosexual practice. This is what I believe about it. But I find that often those, um, those opinions are not um, able to be clearly, um, I'm, I'm trying to say this gently. I guess what I'm really saying is I, I don't think a lot of people know why they hold those opinions. I think they just hold them. I think they just have them. And they're not sure they can explain, both Christian and non-Christian, by the way, not sure they can explain why they think what they think. And that, that, that's a little troublesome uh, because I think for any view that we're going to hold, particularly one that has the possibility of ostracizing a, a, a group of people and potentially causing harm to a group of people, it's, we need to understand why we think what we think and what practices are called for in light of that. So I think it, it's a relevant and, and particularly important topic for those reasons. So... Now, let me do this. Let me frame our conversation for us a little bit. All right, now, let me just warn you as well. It's gonna take more, it's gonna take a while to unpack what we wanna say here. And so, we're gonna go a little over today. I'm just gonna warn you now. If you need to get up and go, I will not be offended, all right? Um, so, here's the deal. Let me frame our conversation for us a little bit. Our conversation is not one that primarily, I think, is with those outside the church. Here's the mistake people inside the church make too often, is that we get into this conversation with people who are, we have it more as a political agenda type of a conversation when we talk about, we talk about this in sort of an activist sort of a way. I think that's a mistake. First and foremost, I would say this. It, you know, I'm not sure what compelling reason I would give to someone outside of a relationship with Jesus to not affirm same-sex orientation or practice. I'm just not sure there's a good one, honestly. Um, I, think that, I think that it doesn't make a ton of sense to embrace the Bible's sexual ethic if you don't believe that Jesus is King and Lord. Just, I, I, I would be baffled why you would do that, honestly. I mean, I think there's some good things to pay attention to in, some, in terms of some of that activism and whether it actually helps the community it claims to help. I think that that's a whole other conversation, right? But at the end of the day, again, what, what the church is about is not behaviorism. The church is not a place where we're trying to get people to agree that certain behaviors are right and good and true. The church is a place where we're trying to proclaim that Jesus is king and that submitting to his lordship has implications for us. It means living in a certain way, but it means living in a certain way not out of our own strength, but because he's come and we were dead and he made us alive and everything has changed, right, church? And the behaviors, they follow, they follow the heart. So the, the goal in addressing any subject from what the Bible has to say about it is to ask, why does God shape our heart in such a way that we would say these actions are good and these actions are not? Not just to talk about actions. Now, that's, that's number one, I think, to frame the conversation. Uh, the conversation then is essentially a, a conversation that we're having in-house. It's, it's in the church. So for lack of a better terminology, and these are the most common terms, the two groups within the church when it comes to this issue of homosexuality is the affirming group and the non-affirming group. Now, um, essentially, historically, the church has not affirmed uh, homosexual practice as something that can be holy and pleasing to God. That's been the historical teaching of the church. 
in recent years, there has been a growing minority of people that would count themselves in the affirming camp. Now, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. These are people who would say, Jesus is Lord, and I believe that homosexual practice can be something that is holy before God, uh, that should be extended into the covenant of marriage, should be extended to two men or two women in the same way it's extended to a man and a woman. And that in that context, uh, same-sex practice can be pleasing and holy to the Lord. That voice grows louder. Uh, and, you know, if you've done any reading or kind of kept up with cultural events, at least within the church circles, you've heard this voice growing louder. And so I think it's important to kind of address and understand where that argument is coming from. Though, but those are essentially, that's the nature of the conversation, right? And it's a robust conversation. It's a heated one. Uh, but it warrants unpacking. Now, this is the most important thing for framing our conversation. The most important one. Above those other things, this is the most important one. Homosexuality is not first and foremost an issue. And we talk about it as an issue, right? And it creates issues that need to be discussed. But homosexuality is not first and foremost an issue. It is a descriptive term that describes people that God loves and delights in and sent his son to redeem with his blood. If we, that, that has to be the first place any conversation begins. It just does. You can't begin the conversation. Anyway, I mean, it's gonna be no surprise that I'm gonna argue for a non-affirming view of same-sex practice, okay? You're probably not gonna be shocked by that. So I'm gonna say that. I think that's what the Bible teaches. I'm gonna try and clearly explain why and what that is. But that is not the same as saying, that is not the same as saying that God does not love gay people and it's just, you know, it probably sounds trite. It probably sounds like the quip thing you have to say before you go on to then say, oh, but this behavior is condemned by Scripture, right? But I just want you to know that you can't begin this conversation, begin to understand unless you begin from that place, all right? That this is not an issue. This is people. In fact, this is people in this space, in this room, in our church, part of our family, whom we love and whom Christ loves the conversation can't advance until we've embraced that, accepted that. Now, let me give you our thesis because here's what I know. You come to these conversations and, and the way that I find this happens a lot of times is I get up here and you're down there and you are waiting to just hear whether I'm gonna say what you agree with or not. Uh, and you're ready to accept or reject everything that I say based upon that. So I'm just gonna give you what I'm gonna say up front and then I'll unpack the argument and that way you can just decide whether you wanna tune me out right now or not. All right, I would encourage you, please don't, all right? Uh, I think there's a need for humble listening and humble engagement in that. In fact, that's why we wanna have you know, a time of Q&A after this, not just around this subject, but around everything we've been talking about in sexuality. Because these things, I mean, look, monologues don't get a lot done, all right? I'm no fool, all right? Preaching has value. The word says that preaching has value, the proclamation of God's word so that people will be transformed under its teaching, highly valuable, right? Uh, because hopefully it's God's word that's proclaimed, not just human opinions, that's important, it's transformative. But at the end of the day, conversations are always more transformative than monologues. Dialogues are better than monologues. Would you agree with that? Dialogues better than monologues. Please just, you know, like get that one tattooed on you somewhere, right? So, um, lost my place in saying that. Oh, yeah, thesis. That's what I was gonna give you. So here's, here's our thesis, okay? I'll repeat it twice. The Bible does not condemn same-sex orientation but it does condemn same-sex practice. Therefore, the most loving thing the church can do is embrace gay men and women right where they are and call them to submit their desires to God in the same way that we call all Christians, especially ourselves, to do the same where our natural desires do not align with the teaching of Scripture. Let's say that again. Just make sure we get it. The Bible does not condemn same-sex orientation, but it does condemn same-sex practice. Therefore, the most loving thing the church can do is embrace gay men and women right where they are and call them to submit their desires to God. In the same way, we call all Christians, especially ourselves, to do the same where our natural desires do not align with the teaching of Scripture. Now, there's a couple things there that I don't know if you caught them, but I want to make sure I sort of illuminate them a little bit or draw them out. The first is there's a presumption there that truth and love are not counter to one another. And not only are truth and love not counter to one another, that's the kind of conversation, that's the dialogue that happens a lot, is this assumption that particularly in this arena, if you tell someone who's gay that same-sex practice is forbidden by Scripture, that you, that by 
by default do not love that person. And what I want you to know is not only is that not true, but love and truth can never actually exist apart from one another. You can never have true love without truth. A real version, I mean, just play that out for a minute. With your kids, with your spouse, with your friends that you love, if you withhold something that's true from them, have you loved them? I would argue the answer to that is no. If God has a way of thinking, something he has, has given to us, and we withhold that or, or shirk from it or shrink back from it, I don't think real love is possible at least not the kind that I'm familiar with that involves a lot of back and forth and a lot of wrestling and a lot of sometimes hurt feelings and a lot of trying to work out what it looks like to be in a loving relationship with one another while even possibly disagreeing. But I don't think love and truth can exist apart from one another. Now, it is possible to speak truth and not be loving. You know that, right? It is possible to do that, but it's not possible to be loving without the truth. And we'll make sure you understand that because you're gonna get that thrown at you a lot if you're involved in this conversation that you fail to love. And the irony of that is often those who would lob that assault at you would be people who are making an argument that is less based on truth and more based on experience. And the result of that is that truth gets washed away. And if truth gets washed away, then love is washed away. You cannot have it without, you cannot have love without truth. No. The other important distinction, I think, to, to draw out in that thesis is this, is to say that all of us, all of us have desires that are disordered. Would you agree with that? There's not a single one of us in our sexuality or in any other area that does not have desires that have been disordered. And the call for everyone who wants to walk with Jesus is to identify what those disordered desires are, the things that have been shaped by just being human and in a fallen world and identifying how we submit that to God. The answer is not to say to God, I have disordered desires, therefore I will fulfill those desires because I experience them naturally. The answer is to say to God, what do I do with desires that I have? I come by honestly. I come by them just in my nature. They're there. What do I do with them when I see that your word says that they're not pleasing to you? What what do I do with them? And to offer those to God and to submit them to him and then to walk in our practices in a way that pleases him. And until we recognize that all of us have disordered desires and it's the call of every follower of Jesus to lay down. I mean, every, look, it, just a little, little preview for those of you who may be kind of considering faith in Jesus. Just know that when you come, a lot of the stuff inside of you is gonna have to be laid down. Like none of us, comes to Jesus and gets to hold on to everything that we naturally desire or love. Every one of us comes and says, oh, okay, there you go. Oh, okay, and we just put it at the feet of the throne. We say, that one's yours, that one's yours. I see that that's gotta go, right? Some of us have anger just boiling over inside of us from, from a very young age. We just, like, it's just in us and we don't know what to do with it. Guess what? That anger has to be surrendered to the throne of God given to Jesus, just, you can just go thing by thing by thing. My pride, you know, lust, anger. Just, just go down the list, thing after thing after thing. They're not desires that are aligned with God's original intention. Now, so those are the important distinctions. Now, let's do this, because I think this is an important place to start, and then we're gonna dive into the text. But the first thing I think we need to do is ask, what is good in the affirming position and what have we gotten wrong as a church? I think the best place to start in any dialogue is where have we gotten it wrong, all right? So let's start with what's good in the affirming position. Those who would say same-sex practice can be holy unto the Lord. The first is this, a desire to take the Bible seriously. Okay, now ultimately I'm gonna argue that I think the interpretive practices of the affirming camp, they come up short. I just, I don't think, I think that they do a few too many um, <laughs> interpretive gymnastics, to bring an experience to bear on the text rather than letting the text speak in the way that it speaks and, and let it be what it is and then inform us. So ultimately, I think the interpretive arguments come up short. But the thing I want you to hear is that people in the non-affirming camp often lob this assault at people in the affirming camp, right? You don't take the Bible seriously. That's not true. That's why book after book after book has been written trying to justify with biblical argument why you can take an affirming position of same-sex practice. They're not trying to dismiss Scripture. Again, I think their interpretation comes up short, but we should honor that they are seeing the authority of the Bible and the necessity. they're not chucking the Bible. They're saying, 
how do we look at the Bible and understand it to argue in favor of this? Now, the second thing that I think is good is hearts of compassion and love. When you read the case made by people or have a conversation with someone who makes the case uh, to affirm same-sex practice, it is exceedingly evident that they are people who take the biblical mandates, you hear that word mandates, right? Mandates towards love and compassion very seriously. And that is something that we should be very thankful for and learn from. Number three, the call to covenant marriage as the right context for sex. Sometimes what gets said by people in the non-affirming camp is that those who are in the affirming camp are arguing for no boundaries around sexuality, that essentially everything's fair game. And that's a, that's a bad, that's not something to throw at the affirming camp because the, at least the, those who would affirm same-sex practice within the Christian community are not saying there should be no boundaries around sex. They are saying that the covenant boundaries of marriage should be the boundaries for sex, the same way we're saying it. They just would believe and argue that those boundaries should be opened to two men or two women to be in a marriage relationship with one another and then experience sexual expression in that context. So it's false to lob any other argument at them, really, because that's not what they're arguing for. Those are things to be grateful for, I think. Now let's ask this question of where we've gotten it wrong. Let me point you to three resources that I've just found to be incredibly helpful in this conversation. Uh, the first is this, it's by Preston Sprinkle. It's a book called People to be Loved. And I think it unpacks many of the arguments uh, really well, it helps for understanding. By the way, we've picked up the sermon notes on the way and these are listed at the bottom, so you don't have to rush to jot these down. The second one, well actually I'll say the second one is this, Homosexuality, the Bible and the Church, Two Views. It's, it's a series of books called Two Views. And essentially you'll get those arguing in the affirming camp and those arguing in the non-affirming camp. And they do a great job of unpacking the different uh, approaches to the scriptures that they are taking to uh, help make sense of their argument. Okay, I would say those two are, are really helpful. And then this one is a short little read. It's, it's almost a booklet more than a book, uh, but it's called Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. Wesley is a gay Christian uh, who's experienced same-sex orientation from his very earliest days, has walked faithfully with Jesus, uh, is a biblical scholar and really just a, a godly man. I don't know him personally, but from all that I can tell, all that I've read that he's written, I've been so impressed with him. And he has chosen to walk in celibacy because he's convicted that the Bible does not allow for same-sex practice. And I'll tell you, um, I've not read a better book in terms of just, uh, it will just hit you in the heart. It will just make your heart break for the challenge, for the challenge that our brothers and sisters who experience a same-sex orientation live with every day in terms of walking in, in sexual righteousness and in faithfulness. So let me recommend that to you, uh, as well as Wesley Hill's written another book called Spiritual Friendship, which would always be a good, also be a good one. But I'd, I'd recommend, recommend this one first, Washed and Waiting. So... All right, so where we've gotten it wrong. The first way we've gotten it wrong is we have been fearful and we have been hateful. We've related to gay men and women out of fear and out of hate. Listen to this story. This is, I'm not sure how to pronounce Eric's last name, Eric Borges or Borges, so forgive me that I, I'm not sure of the correct pronunciation, but this is a story that Preston Sprinkle tells in his book, People to be Loved. Eric Borges was raised in a conservative Christian home. At a young age, Eric realized he was different and, uh, and other kids at school let him know it. He endured relentless and ongoing bullying throughout kindergarten and the rest of his elementary school years were tarnished with horror. I was physically, mentally, verbally, and emotionally assaulted on a daily basis, recalls Eric. This led to chronic migraines, debilitating depression, suicidal thoughts, and a whole host of other mental and physical problems. My, my name was not Eric, but faggot. I was stalked, spit on, and ostracized. On one occasion, he was assaulted in a full classroom and nobody intervened, not even the teacher who was present. Throughout school, Eric was treated like a monster, a subspecies of the human race. I was told that the very essence of my being was unacceptable. I had nowhere safe to go, not even church. In his sophomore year of college, Eric came out to his parents. He told them he was gay. After performing an exorcism on their son, he told him, among other things, that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural, and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011. 
in the video, he encouraged other youth who have had similar experiences that it gets better. Having suffered in a hissing cauldron of ridicule and torment, Eric wanted to help others to find comfort and hope to pull them through the pain. One month later, Eric killed himself. The statistics around violence and around suicide for gay teens, in particular gay teens, is not just alarming, it's heartbreaking. Teens with a same-sex orientation are two to five times, depending on the statistics you find, two to five times more likely to commit suicide than their peers. That's at least double. Even sadder, those who grew up in the church experience an increased likelihood of committing suicide. I want you to catch that. It's those growing up in the church that are more likely to go down that road of suicide. Those aren't statistics, church, that call for excuses. They call for repentance. Second place we've gotten it wrong is we've been hypocritical. We are often happy to declare that the Bible condemns same-sex practice, but fail to align ourselves with other clear teachings of Scripture related to heterosexual sex outside of marriage, divorce, and loving our neighbor and our enemy. The third place we've gotten it wrong is we spend too much time in the wrong conversation. We've been too worried about trying to impose our political agenda and engaging activists who disagree with us than we have been about telling people, particularly gay people, who Jesus is, how much he loves them, and what he has done to display that love. Those are just a few ways that I think we've gotten it wrong. And friends, until we can begin to admit where we have held perhaps a non-affirming position for reasons that are not biblical, for reasons that are not biblical, until we can begin to understand that, we shouldn't be making the argument at all. Now, there's a biblical argument to be made, a biblical stance to be taken, but it's not one that involves hate. It's not one that involves anger. It's not one that involves being uninformed. It's one that involves love and compassion and mercy and truth and kindness. All right. So let's look at the biblical case for a non-affirming position. A biblical case for non-affirming position. I want to walk you through three texts. There are six texts in particular that are always alluded to in this conversation. I haven't listed them in your sermon notes. I'm only going to tackle three. We can talk more about the other ones in the Q&A if you want. I think these are kind of the three pivotal ones. Now, the strongest case for a non-affirming position isn't first and foremost a prohibition passage, meaning a passage that says, hey, uh, gay sex is out of bounds to God. That's not actually the primary, most powerful argument for the non-affirming position. The most powerful argument is a robust and strong theology of marriage, understanding what the Bible affirms and says about marriage. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so here's what we need to do. There's obviously a lot there that we can unpack, but the most important thing I want you to see is that the argument Paul is making is that husbands and wives, men and women brought together in marriage represent the relationship between Christ and his church. So the key question as it relates to our subject today that we have to ask is, 
Is there something about their distinct genders that enable them to do that? Or can two men and two women enter a marriage covenant and display the relationship between Christ and the church? Do you see that that's the important question, right? Because if two men and two women can represent Christ in the church, then they should absolutely be ushered into and enter into marriage and have marriage as an available option for them, biblically speaking. But if there's something that is specific to the genders, male and female, in other words, Paul is saying women... You perform this role in the marriage, the church, husbands, men, you perform this role, Christ, in it, right? And this isn't born out of bigotry or out of a patriarchal understanding of how society works. This is born out of something that is in the very heart of God. If that's true, then marriage is meant to exist between a man and a woman. The gendered specificity is important. By the way, this is going to argue for us that it is very important for us to understand that there is a distinction between men and women that should be embraced, not washed over that male is good and that female is good and that we should delight in those things, not the stereotypical versions of them, but in the biblical versions of them. And rather than let them go so that we can kind of do as we please in certain ways, we should embrace these things as biblical and good realities. Now, here's the key text for us, and you maybe noticed it. If the question is... um, is gendered specificity necessary for marriage because it's necessary for the representation of Christ and the church, then the key text becomes verse 31 in Ephesians chapter 5 because what he does in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 is he quotes from Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. In other words, he's alluding all the way back to the beginning, the first man and the first woman, and he's saying something about what I've just said about husbands and wives representing Christ and the church is was meant to be understood all the way from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 1 and 2, which is why he's quoting. Jesus, by the way, does the same thing in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 when he is asked about divorce. Someone says, hey, when is it permissible to get divorced? And Jesus says, I don't want you to get divorced. That's not God's design nor his heart. And then he alludes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, same thing Paul just quoted, to say, This is why God designed male and female to come together in marriage. So what we're going to see is that gender specificity seems to be important to marriage. You with me, church? You with me? Okay, so flip back then to Genesis. And while you're flipping there, let me me tell you this too. Now, this is not a defining argument, but it's probably one that's worth considering uh, when it comes to gender specificity within marriage. There's nowhere in the Bible that homosexual practice or homosexual marriage is spoken of in a positive light. Now, some people would argue, well, that's just because homosexual marriage is not something people were aware of back then, or they will see that there's an argument that goes that they weren't aware of consensual, monogamous, sort of you know, loving homosexual sex. So the argument is, but the important thing to remember is, look, God is pretty good at giving us in his word all the things that he wants us to know. He's pretty good at explaining his heart and his mind to us. So if marriage is so crucial to God and so crucial to representing Christ in the church, he has such a big plan and purpose for marriage, then we might expect that he would give us clear understanding of what marriage was intended to be. And the fact that nowhere in the Bible does God allude to taking pleasure in two men or two women coming together in a marriage covenant is an argument from silence. Yes, I'm arguing for something the Bible doesn't say, so you gotta take that into consideration. But I might also say that if, if... This topic is so important that God probably would have seen fit to clarify that for us, to bring that forward and to describe a situation in which he took pleasure in two men or two women coming together in sexual expression within marriage. Now, back to Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and verse 27, okay? Let's start there, chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so right there, what we have is God creating human beings and saying, they bear my image And notice that he says male and female. In other words, both, both reflect the image of God. In other words, they're equal in value, but distinct in role, 
right? They're meant to be two distinct genders, not the same, with all the beauties, all representing who God is in his nature. So there's something about being female that represents God and displays God. There's something about being male that represents God and displays God. Hence the creation of not just male and not just female, but male and female in the image of God. Now, one of the arguments that's gonna get made a lot by the affirming camp is that all these writers in the Bible are writing in a patriarchal society, one in which males dominated, and that is true. And there were many abuses in that day and age of women. There were many abuses of men uh, sort of exercising power over women and not looking to the rights of women. That's absolutely 100% true. You can't argue against that, that that was the context in which they were writing. But the thing that is missed again and again is how the Bible, yes, at points describes the uh, the uh, poor treatment of women, but the Bible is radically countercultural in its day and age in arguing of the value of women. And it begins right here. Did you catch that he's saying women are made in the image of God, not lesser than men, not greater than men, made in the image of God equal to men. And that's something that the affirming camp seems to miss, that the Bible again and again, far from being patriarchal, actually argues that God from the very beginning saw the beauty and the wonder of female and the beauty and the wonder of male and delighted in them both. Right, think back to 1 Corinthians chapter seven. If you were here last week and we were talking about singleness, one of the things that we talked about it's so radically countercultural is that in that, Paul's talking about husbands and wives and he says, look, don't, don't abstain from sex for too long. Let's be real practical about this. You're gonna need to get together sexually, okay? This should be somewhat funny, but all right. <laughs> right, like don't, don't hold out too long. Don't wait too long. And, and, and then he says something that's just, it just would be mind-blowing. The first part's not. The first part he says, says, wives, you don't have authority over your own bodies. Your husbands do. And everyone in that day and age would have said, that's right. And then he says something that would have blown everyone's mind because what does he say next? Husbands, you don't have authority over your own bodies, but the wives do, right? And that should have been, that would have, everyone would have been like, what? So when the affirming camp says that the Bible is just making arguments about male dominance to keep men on top societally, it, there's really just not a lot of evidence to support that because again and again, the Bible affirms the goodness of the feminine and delights in it, which is something we should do. Now, okay, go over one page to Genesis chapter two because, okay, we see that male, female made in his image and now come to chapter two, verse 18 through 24. And the verse 24 is the one that Paul quotes and Jesus quotes, but verse 18 and verse 20 are gonna be key. So verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. The two key words that we saw in verse 18 and in verse 20 are helper and fit, okay? I gotta find my place again. There we go, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, in other words, because of everything we've just read about God looking for a fit helper for Adam and then creating woman, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In other words, alluding to sexual union, but really broader than that, one flesh is not just sexual union, it's union within marriage, right? So in other words, man and woman enter into marriage covenant because of this idea that God made woman is a helper fit for man. Now, we've already seen that God's equal value of the genders, but distinct roles. Now, what we see here is that, that word helper, that's a key word that we need to understand. That's the Hebrew word ezer or ezer. If you transliterate it into English, it's E-Z-E-R. And do you know what it means? It means a strong warrior helper. Okay, last service, the women really liked that. <laughs> they got really excited about that, right? 
means a strong warrior help. In other words, the idea is military help that is being called in because someone is losing the battle. You like that one better, don't you? That, that's what this word means. You want to call that lesser or demeaning somehow? That's God saying, look at what I, I looked at the man. He's going to lose the battle by himself. I better get a woman in there, right? And let's, let's let him go at this together. Okay, women, you'd lose it by yourself too, all right? So don't act like you wouldn't. And we're in this together, all right? Then the next word, that word fit, that word fit, okay? So we go from ezer to now the word konegdo, and it's a compound word. It's got two parts, ke and negdo, obviously, right? Ke means like, like alike, right? Negdo means opposite. That's a weird word to put together in that space. Why would he do that? Because he looks around, and some, the affirming camp argues that when it says there was not a helper fit for Adam, that word fit or suitable, in trans, some translations you have might say suitable helper, right? That's the word connecto. They would say that they're arguing that he looked around and saw only animals and therefore there was no fit person for him, right? There's no other humans. Animals and I, we don't go together. I need another human. But the problem with that is if that was all this text meant, then you could just get away with saying there's no one like me, right? There's no one, there's no one care for me. But it doesn't just say ke. He combines two words to make a compound word, ke-negdo, alike, but what? Opposite. A mirror reflection, right? Like me, but opposite of me. So the translation would be something like, there is no one who is alike opposite of me. So I look at the animals, yes, and I say, there's none like me. I need someone like me. And then I look at the woman and I say, there's no one opposite me that complements me that rounds out the weaknesses that I have that comes with me to help fight this battle in the world for righteousness and goodness to display the image of God, a like opposite. Now, so here's the thing I think that we can see. And so then verse 24, therefore they enter into marriage, one flesh union with one another. So here's what I think. It's not, this is not a definitive like, okay, close the book, we're done. We, there's the affirming, there's the non-affirming position. You got it. Like theology of marriage requires male and female. It is hard for me to see how two men or two women could display Christ and the church because they are not alike opposites. They are alike alike, right? And so now what you can say, right, is that, okay, this describes, this, you can make the argument, this really just describes the first marriage. It doesn't mean that all marriages that proceed after that one must also be male-female. They could be male-male or female-female. So that leads us to the question then, we don't just need an affirmation of heterosexual marriage at the beginning. What we also need is to understand, is there anywhere where the Bible condemns homosexual practice and therefore homosexual marriage? Because that would be the context in which sex is, uh, is able to be displayed. And probably to no one's surprise, there, there is. Now I'm going to point you to two. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Just a few books over. And chapter 20, verse 13 in Leviticus. And we're going to pick up our pace here a little bit. Leviticus 18, 22 says this. Very straightforward, very short. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Okay, so that seems relatively straightforward. Let's go over to Leviticus chapter 20 and look at verse 13. Same idea. He says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed abomination, an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Okay, so these are probably, they, not probably, they are the most straightforward texts condemning or forbidding gay sex in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. There are several objections that affirming people make about these texts. Let me just walk you through some of the objections. Let's see if they hold water, okay? Let's see if the objections are good objections. The first is that the sex that's being forbidden is not mutual, consensual, loving, monogamous sex. It's abusive sex, right? It's master to slave. It is male to boy, man to boy, right? That it's someone who has authority and power uh, and they are exercising that then over uh, in, a, in a, either a rape context or just in a, if not rape, in an abusive way, um, in an exploitative way over someone with less power societally. So that's, that's argument number one. Now, there's 
two reasons why I don't think that argument holds water. The first is this, is that there are not any qualifications in the verses. I don't know if you noticed that or not, right? It doesn't say you shouldn't have sex with a man as with a woman, and then it doesn't explain any other qualifications. Now, again, when you read through the book of Leviticus, like when you did your Bible reading in a year plan, Leviticus is what got you, isn't it? Like you stopped in Leviticus, and if that didn't get you, numbers probably did. But probably, maybe, part of the reason it got you is because you went, oh my gosh, there are so many detailed laws about what you should and shouldn't do. It's driving me crazy. Yeah? Well, if there are that many detailed laws stating what God delights in and doesn't delight in, shouldn't we probably expect that he would give qualifications if there were, if there were grounds upon which he was saying homosexual sex is bad in this way, but in this way it's not? God is really good at explaining what he means. He doesn't necessarily need us to try and fill in the gaps for him. So the fact that there are no qualifications in this, I think is, it makes it a little tough to argue that affirming position from the idea that this is abusive sex. Now, what makes it even harder is I don't know if you noticed. Now, again, in chapter 20, there's a statement that under the law, two men who would, who would have sex together should be put to death. Now, I would hope that none of us would argue that should still be the case today because we live under the new covenant, not the old covenant, which means that God has sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, which is why we don't follow like an eye for an eye. If you hit me in the eye, I don't have to punch you back in the eye, right? Because Jesus has paid for the sin you just committed against me, not called me to then go out and have to get retribution against you. He told me, actually, Jesus came, you heard it said to do that. I tell you, turn the other cheek. Now, but what's interesting is this. Did you notice that the punishment in Leviticus chapter 20, did it just fall on one person or did it fall on two people? It fell on two people, didn't it? It fell on both the parties. So if this was abusive or exploitative, how horrendous would that be? Someone rapes you and you get put to death? All throughout the Bible, whenever actually raped is talked about, it is condemned as something that absolutely cannot happen among God's people. And when someone commits it, they're punished, not the person who is the victim. So if this is indeed talking about exploitative or abusive sex or rape, then that doesn't make a lot of sense why both parties would be punished in Leviticus chapter 20. You with me? Okay. The next argument that's made is that this sex is talking about cult prostitution. It's talking about sex performed in a cultic environment as an expression of worship to foreign gods. So the affirming camp would say, this is not talking about, again, monogamous, consensual, loving covenant sex between two men or two women. This is talking about worshiping false gods through sexual practices. Well, the problem with that is, one, again, it's filling in a gap that it doesn't say, right? It's, it's assuming something that's not said in the text. So that's an argument from silence. It's not a good one. And number two, the other thing is, if you notice in Leviticus chapter 20, when you read through it, there's all these heterosexual sexual acts that are condemned, don't do this, don't do that. And then it, it lists men having sex with men, right? And says that's also not to be done. And none of those other heterosexual acts are anything that was ever done in a cultic practice. So it's not, the context doesn't give us the idea that what Paul, or what, I'm sorry, not Paul, what the writer of Leviticus, Moses, what he's really getting at then is that this is about worshiping false gods. That, that's foreign to the context. It doesn't really fit by the way, historically, the best historical scholarship coming out today is telling us that these kind of cultic practices really weren't very common in Israel to begin with. So the idea that they, he's speaking against this just doesn't hold a lot of water or weight. Now, third, third thing, and I think this is the strongest objection on the part of the affirming camp, okay? This is the strongest one, is that this prohibition is in Leviticus, which is under the old covenant. It's the law, and we're no longer subject to the law because Christ has come and he's paid the penalty for it. And we don't follow a lot of Old Testament laws, right? What? Let's think about some Old Testament laws you don't follow. Did you have, you had bacon this last week? If you have, you've broken the Old Testament dietary laws, right? Man, I had sausage last night. It was awesome, all right? We cooked up some brats. So I broke the Old Testament law last night. Right? Don't wear mixed fabrics. Okay, I think this is a polycotton blend. I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> so the question becomes, how do we distinguish between which old, but, but by the way, there are more Old Testament laws we still keep than those that we let go of. Right? We don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. Why? Because Christ is our once for all sacrifice for sin. So we don't have to keep offering animal sacrifices. But we do obey a lot of laws. 
Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Would you agree those are still things we should be doing or not doing? Right? So we still obey many laws. So the question becomes, well, New Testament or Old Testament to New Testament, how do I know if this prohibition is like mixed, mixed clothing or if it's like don't murder? Is it one that I'm supposed to keep or is it one that I can let go of that's fulfilled in Christ? No. The best way to understand that, and I don't want to get into all the complexities of how the law translates into the New Testament because that would take us another, you know, longer than we got. But the best way to look at that is how do those laws then get spoken about in the New Testament, right? So when Jesus comes in, he says, you don't need to offer sacrifices to animals anymore because I'm your sacrifice. Now we have our answer. That's why we don't follow that law anymore. Right? Jesus has mentioned things to say about the Sabbath in the New Testament. He comes and he says, I'm going to tell you that the Sabbath was not, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And you've misunderstood the whole intention of me giving you a Sabbath day of rest. And so he, he really reverses some thinking about what it means to obey the Sabbath, which is one of the Ten Commandments, right? the center of the law. And so we have to ask, well, okay, is there anything in the New Testament that speaks a prohibition against same-sex practice in the same way that Leviticus does, because then that would inform us that this is, not a, this is not a prohibition that can be left behind because now we're under the covenant of grace instead of under the law. You guys follow that, right? And of course, the answer is that there are. There are New Testament prohibitions against same-sex practice. Romans chapter one is where I wanna take us. And the other place, I'm not gonna go there today, but 1 Corinthians chapter six, 1 Timothy chapter one, and there's lots of different conversation around those. But let's just look at Romans chapter one. And I'll try and hit this quick because I know we're, you got anybody falling asleep yet? We all right? All right, good. Like I said, if you got to go, I won't be offended. All right, so Romans chapter one, verse 18 through 32. You don't have to tell preachers that, they just do it. <laughs> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is verse 18, sorry, chapter one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, in other words, they saw God exhibited in his creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Okay, so what's he just said so far? What he said is that there is a way in which when you don't acknowledge God as being God and being in charge and submit to him, that it twists or disorders your, your emotions, your affections, your desires get twisted, right? And so he's saying, to sum it up, disordered worship leads to disordered affections, right? Disordered worship leads to disordered affections, desires. Follow along now. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, so far we have nothing about sexuality. We have nothing about homosexuality. All we have is Paul's talking to Gentiles specifically in this context. He's gonna spend all of Romans one through three basically condemning all of us to death. He's gonna say everybody, right? In chapter one, Gentiles. In chapter two, all the Jews are looking at the Gentiles and go, yeah, that's right, I knew they were scumbags, right? And then in chapter two, he's gonna say, guess what, Jews? You too, because you had the law and you didn't follow it. You disobeyed. In fact, you, are, you got worse coming down on you. And, and there, so now the Jews are trapped. And then in chapter three, as if to say, by the way, in case you didn't catch that, Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody. He says, you're all coming up short. Now, praise God that he does not end in chapter three because it is bad news. Chapters four and chapter five, I'm not gonna go there yet. I get excited. I wanna go there, but I'm gonna wait, all right? Because chapters four and chapters five get real good. But here's what he says now. So we haven't had anything about homosexuality up to this point, but then in verse 26 and 27, he says this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, okay? Because they rejected him, their passions, desires, were shaped in a way that they shouldn't have been shaped. 
For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, now here's the key. Because in verse 28 now, he's, he's not just continuing to say, oh, and this is also true of gay people. He's actually turning the attention back on not just our sexual expression being disordered, but he's gonna turn it back on all of us. And he's gonna say, look at all the other things that get disordered in your actions when you reject God and then your desires get disordered and then your actions get disordered. So the, the pathway is disordered worship leads to disordered affections, leads to disordered actions. You with me? So look at the actions, see if these don't describe some of us, okay? Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So he's just repeating the idea there. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That one got us all. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die and not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a sobering list, isn't it? So here are the two objections that the affirming camp offers and it revolves around this idea of contrary to nature, verses 26 and 27, when Paul says that they gave up those things which were natural for that which was contrary to nature. He says it about women and he says it about men. This is the one place in scripture where homosexual practice is not discussed in terms of men, it's actually discussed in terms of women and men, okay? And so when that's happening, what he says is, uh, sorry, let me grab my place again. Verse 26 and 27, yeah. So the two objections. Uh, The first thing is that in the affirming camp, they'll say that contrary to nature means excessive passion, which leads to abusive behavior. So again, it goes back to the idea that what Paul is forbidding is not monogamous, consensual sex between two men and two women. He's forbidding abusive, exploitative sex. They think in particular he has the Roman court in mind, which if you do a study of Roman sexual practices, it is filthy, I mean, it is just gross. Like, let me just warn you, probably just don't do it, okay? Because the stuff that was going on was bad. And so they're right to say, the Roman court, I mean, there's some, like Caligula and Nero and some of these guys, I mean, it's just sick, right? So they're saying, well, that's what he had in mind, some of those practices. But again, the problem is he doesn't clarify that for us or say that for us. He seems to be trying to trap everybody under sin, Jew and Gentile, not just Romans, right? The other thing is that he doesn't say that disordered worship leads to excessive desire. He says it leads to disordered desire or wrong desire. So it's not too much of a desire that's the problem. It's the desire itself. That's really the argument of the text. So objection number two is that contrary to nature is that the argument is that Paul assumed that when he used that phrase contrary to nature, he would have assumed that every person was heterosexual by nature. That there was no concept of someone who would have been homosexual by their nature from a young age, right? And because of that, he's arguing that what is not good is for someone who is by nature heterosexual to then perform homosexual acts. And that's what he's forbidding. And since Paul had no idea of someone who would have a homosexual orientation from birth or from very young, that this isn't really speaking about that at all. And we know now, what they didn't know then, that there are people who have a homosexual orientation from a very young age, if not from birth, right? And so there's this discussion, there's this way of of saying, then we can just dismiss this prohibition that Paul is using because he doesn't understand what we now understand. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. Number one is that it's chronological snobbery. It's saying we know what they didn't know, right? And there are times where that can be true, but it's certainly not true in this case. There are actually written sort of um, stories about and written explanations of monogamous homosexual relationships that existed in ancient Greece that easily would have come forward into, you know, this is about 100 years after those writings, right? So to say that in the ancient world there was no knowledge of two men or two women, even in Greece, entering into marriages with one another is just false. It's just not true. So the history doesn't back up that line of argument in the affirming camp. Um, Also, 
again, it's an argument from silence. It's saying that this is, uh, it's saying something that the text doesn't say. So, that said, I think the most faithful interpretation seems to be that Paul is condemning same-sex practice. But it raises a final question we gotta answer before we can wrap up, okay? And the final question is this, is that what do we do with same-sex orientation? What do we do with our brothers and sisters who are in the church, who experience a same-sex orientation like Wesley Hill from a very young age? Is Paul not condemning that as well when he says that disordered worship leads to disordered desire, which leads to disordered actions? And I don't think it does. I don't think it it, um, condemns the orientation, uh, the homosexual orientation. I do clearly think it condemns the practice. And here's why. Because follow the line of argument. If someone like Wesley, if I can use him as an example, who from his very youngest days experienced the same-sex attraction, has also committed his life to Jesus and walked faithfully with him, I would argue more faithfully than I have as I listen to his journey. Uh, And the line of argument is that it's disordered worship here that leads to disordered desire. Well, what do you do with someone who's followed Jesus and walked with him their whole life but still experienced the same-sex desire? This line of argumentation doesn't seem to apply to that situation, does it? It seems to miss that, orient, that, that, which is why some argue, well, he didn't understand the idea. He thought everyone was heterosexual. The history doesn't back that up. So what I think we're meant to understand is this, is that while the practice, homosexual practice is condemned in this text, I don't think homosexual orientation is. It's what you do with that orientation. Now, the, go back to what we said at the very beginning. Just because we experience a desire or come by it naturally or find it in ourselves from our youngest days, does that make that desire good? I think all of us recognize there are desires in us that are not good. And the reality is that's a result of the fall. So I think that's what we can say. And here's the other thing behind that. If Paul paints homosexual desire leading to homosexual practice as something that at some point is created by rejecting God and worshiping false gods, then I think that we are probably best to understand that where homosexual desire exists, even where it wasn't brought about by false worship or rejection of God, that the desire itself is a result of the human rejection of God at the fall. Where the personal individual wouldn't have rejected God, we as human beings have all done it and we're all party to it. And so that orientation is a disordered orientation resulting from the fall. Now, I know that that's an offensive thing to say, but I hope that we can also understand that it should offend all of us because we're all disordered, right? And everybody in the church is a yes and amen to that. That's the whole point of Jesus is that I've got all these disordered desires that Jesus comes in and says, I'm gonna redeem you, I'm gonna walk with you. Okay, so I think that's the key and clear way to understand Romans chapter one. Now, the good news, the great news is that Paul goes on in Romans chapter four and Romans chapter five to say anyone who would come to God through faith in Jesus Christ can be redeemed from all that I just laid out in chapters one through three. How about Romans chapter five, verse eight? God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got our act together, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. In other words, what Paul is saying is everyone that I just listed, every action Every orientation, everything I just listed in Romans chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three are all met by the grace of God at the cross of Jesus. And you are called into his family and called to walk in righteousness, which means that if we are single and marriage is not available to us, either because we cannot marry someone of our same sex and that's what our orientation desires, or because we are single for some other reason, for the kingdom, that we are to walk in celibacy that we are to walk in righteousness. Now, here's the practical considerations I wanna give you and then we'll dismiss. Number one, there seems to be an assumption in the affirming camp that if you can't express yourself sexually, that you cannot flourish or thrive as a human being. And I would say that that is just false. What does that say to our friends who are heterosexual but are single and have no marriage partner and they remain sexually abstinent their entire life? None of us would say they should express themselves sexually because we recognize marriage is the covenant boundaries for sex. And so we call them to celibacy. I think the same should be true for those who find that marriage is not available to them for any reason. 
that we would be called to that. And you can thrive in it. If Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is a choice that can be made to extend the kingdom of God, then he has to understand that our needs for intimacy and our longings to belong can be met in Christ and in his church. It doesn't have to be met through sexual expression. Number two, I would say this, practical considerations. The church has got to be the place the church has got to be a place where people with the same sex orientation can come and wrestle with that in the midst of a family that loves them. This has to be a place, I'll tell you two things. This church has to be a place where gay people who are not yet Christians can come and explore faith in Jesus without being expected to change their actions. Did you change your actions before you knew Jesus? I sure didn't. The point is not get your stuff together and then we'll accept you here. The point is you are welcome in this place to come and explore who Jesus is. Now, when you come to him, some things change and we're gonna fight for righteousness together. But I never have any expectation that someone who has not yet come to faith in Jesus would change anything about their lifestyle. This has gotta be a place where people who are gay and not Christian can be and be loved and welcomed. Number two, this has to be a place where people who are gay and Christian can be walked alongside of and loved and brought into the family, covenant family of God to say, we will walk with you and fight for righteousness. Yes, we will call you to celibacy. We will call you to sexual righteousness the way we will call all of ourselves to sexual righteousness. But we will walk with you in what is a particularly difficult calling. Would you agree that's a particularly difficult calling? I think that's a hard calling. You gotta have a family to walk that one out. You can't do that one alone. All right, friends, thanks for the extra time. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We pray that your truth would resound in us. We pray that your grace would resound in us. Lord, we love it when your word offends us. We love it when your word offends us because it reminds us that you're God and we're not. And so we say, offend us all you want and change us and shape us. Make us like your son, Father. Make us like your son. I just have, I have John 8 in my mind, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery being thrown at your feet, everyone ready to pick up stones and, and kill her. And you say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You saved her life. And then you told her, go and sin no more. My sweet child, Go and sin no more. How good you are to confront us in our sin and not round off the sharp edges of truth and how good you are to receive us by grace and to die so that we could be redeemed into your family. We wanna walk out with that good news on our lips, Lord Jesus. Help us. We need it. Help us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.